Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our video cast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hi, this is Dr. Wahlberg. Today I'm going to be discussing aspiration in the perioperative period. I'll be going over what factors place patients at increased risk of aspiration, different ways to prevent or minimize the risk of aspiration, and finally, what to do if your patient aspirates. The incidence of aspiration is approximately 1 in 8,600 anesthetic procedures. The majority of these cases occur during the induction of anesthesia, and less frequently during extubation or in the PACU. Interestingly, although emergency surgery is a major risk factor for aspiration, the majority of aspiration events occur during elective cases. Although mortality associated with aspiration is low, Aspiration is associated with significant morbidity, including prolonged postoperative mechanical ventilation, acute respiratory distress syndrome, pneumonitis, pneumonia, sepsis, and increased hospital length of stay. Several factors place patients at increased risk of aspiration. These factors include pregnancy after the first trimester, bowel obstruction or other intra-abdominal pathology, trauma due to the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, clinically significant GERD or the presence of a hiatal hernia, obesity, GI motility disorders, opioid medication use, neurological disorders such as Parkinson's disease or bulbar palsy, difficult intubation, and patients with autonomic neuropathy secondary to diabetes. The extent of delayed gastric emptying in diabetic patients correlates with the presence of autonomic neuropathy, not the patient's age, duration of disease, A1C, or the presence of peripheral neuropathy. Patients with a full stomach are also at increased risk of aspiration. Just a reminder, NPO guidelines for clear liquids are two hours, breast milk is four hours, formula, non-human milk, and a light meal is six hours, and meals containing fatty food or meat are at least eight hours. NPO guidelines were developed based on healthy patients presenting for elective surgery and may not be reliable in patients with comorbidities that affect gastric emptying. With the evolution of -of point-of-care ultrasound, it is now feasible to assess gastric volume and content at bedside preoperatively and may be most useful in high-risk patients or those with unclear NPO status. The patient should be scanned in the right lateral decubitus position if feasible, as this increases the test sensitivity because stomach contents will move towards the dependent distal antrum. A low-frequency curved array abdominal probe should be used and placed in the epigastrum in the sagittal plane between the xiphoid process and the umbilicus. The probe is then swept from left to right to locate the gastric antrum. For a more detailed description of this ultrasound technique, gastricultrasound.org is a great resource. If the antrum is empty, it will appear flat and collapsed or round like a bullseye. If the antrum is round and distended with heterogeneous particulate, it indicates the presence of solid food. If the antrum is round, distended, and hyperechoic, it represents clear fluid or milk. 
The cross-sectional area can be measured and correlates linearly with the gastric volume. A predictive model can then be used to estimate the gastric volume. If clear fluid is visible in both the supine and right lateral decubitus position, and the gastric volume is calculated to be greater than 1.5 milliliter per kilogram, then the patient is at high risk for gastric aspiration. So let's say that you identify that your patient is at increased risk of aspiration. There are several things you can do to help minimize this risk. First of all, you should ensure appropriate MPO status for elective procedures. The clinical consequences of aspiration vary greatly and are significantly influenced by the volume and the pH of the aspirated fluid. In adult patients, aspiration of 25 mLs of gastric acid with a pH of less than 2.5 puts the patient at increased risk of clinically significant aspiration pneumonitis. There are several available medications that can help decrease gastric volume and or increase gastric pH. The first class of medicines to discuss are the non-particulate antacids, which includes sodium citrate. Sodium citrate works by neutralizing stomach acid, and it is recommended to give 30 mLs 15 to 30 minutes before the induction of anesthesia in those patients at high risk for aspiration. Sodium citrate has been shown to be 100% effective in increasing gastric pH above 2.5. If aspirated, sodium citrate does not induce pulmonary damage. Although there may be concern that giving sodium citrate will increase gastric volume, animal studies have shown that there is significantly increased mortality after aspiration of a small volume of acidic fluid compared to a large volume of buffered gastric fluid. The next class of medications we will discuss are the H2 antagonists, which include famotidine, cimetidine, and ranitidine. They are competitive antagonists at the H2 receptor on gastric parietal cells, and binding results in decreased gastric acid secretion and decreased gastric volume. Famotidine is most commonly used at this institution and can be given orally or parenterally. 20 milligrams of IV famotidine is a typical dose with an onset of action of 30 minutes and a duration of action of 12 hours. 40 milligrams of oral famotidine has an onset of action of one and a half to three hours, so may be less useful in the perioperative setting. To effectively utilize famotidine, it is important to give an IV dose at least 30 minutes prior to the induction of anesthesia because it will not alter the pH of the gastric fluid already present in the stomach. Cimetidine can also be given orally or parenterally with a usual dose of 150 to 300 milligrams. Onset after an oral administration is one to one and a half hours with a duration of action of four hours. Cimetidine inhibits the hepatic cytochrome P450 oxidase, oxidase enzyme system and can thus prolong the half-life of many drugs, including benzodiazepines. Reported side effects of cimetidine administration include cardiac dysrhythmias, hypotension, cardiac arrest, and central nervous system depression. Ranitidine is another option. The usual parenteral dose is 50 milligrams with an onset of action of one hour and a duration of action of nine hours. Proton pump inhibitors such as omeprazole also decrease gastric acidity and volume by inhibiting the hydrogen potassium ATPase pump on the gastric parietal cells. 40 milligrams of IV omeprazole has an onset of action of 30 minutes. 
the oral dose is 40 to 80 milligrams with an onset of action of two to four hours. Effects can last up to 24 hours. Other proton pump inhibitors that have shown to be effective at increasing gastric pH and reducing volume include lansoprazole and pantoprazole. H2 antagonists and proton pump inhibitors have no effect on gastric emptying. Metoclopramide is a prokinetic agent that is a dopamine antagonist, peripheral cholinergic agonist, and a serotonin receptor agonist. It stimulates upper gastrointestinal motility, increases lower esophageal sphincter tone, and relaxes the, the pylorus, thus promoting gastric emptying. Metoclopramide can be given orally or parenterally. 5 to 10 milligrams IV is a typical dose with an onset of action of 30 minutes. Of note, it is important to give metoclopramide slowly over 5 minutes to prevent abdominal cramping and an impending sense of doom. 10 milligrams of oral metoclopramide has an onset of action of 30 to 60 minutes. The elimination half-life is 2 to 4 hours. Adverse effects include extrapyramidal symptoms like acute dystonias and akathisia. Metoclopramide can also cause neuroleptic malignant syndrome due to its agonism with serotonin receptors and can prolong the QT interval. It should not be given to patients with a bowel obstruction or to those with Parkinson's disease, and it should be used cautiously in those with a recent GI anastomosis. To summarize, sodium bicitra decreases gastric acidity, H2 antagonists and proton pump inhibitors decrease gastric volume and decreased gastric acidity, and metoclopramide enhances gastric emptying. These medications should not be routinely used for all patients undergoing general anesthesia for elective procedures if they do not have an increased risk of aspiration. These medications do not completely eliminate the risk of aspiration, so other techniques should be employed as well. Rapid sequence induction with a cuffed endotracheal tube should be performed for all patients at high risk of aspiration to obtain tracheal intubation as rapidly as possible. Empiric corticosteroids are not recommended for routine prophylaxis of aspiration pneumonitis. Although some animal studies have shown benefit, there is no evidence of benefit in human studies, and they may actually increase the risk of a bacterial superinfection. Treatment is primarily supportive. Aspiration pneumonia may result from inhalation of oropharyngeal microorganisms or result from a superimposed infection on the aspiration pneumonitis. Common organisms include H. influenza, streptococci, and other anaerobic organisms, and ampicillin sylbactam can be considered for treatment. Poor dentition is a risk factor for the development of aspiration pneumonia. Patients at risk of nosocomial colonization the, include those hospitalized for greater than 48 to 72 hours and those who are chronically ill. These patients also need to have coverage for gram-negative organisms and resistant staph species. Treatment options include imipenem, meropenem, or piperacillin tazobactam. Empiric antibiotics should not be administered to prevent aspiration pneumonia. Studies have shown no difference in mortality or ICU admission between patients who have received supportive care versus antibiotic prophylaxis. Patients should be followed closely and counseled on signs of infection. 
So despite taking the appropriate preventative measures mentioned above and performing a rapid sequence induction, your patient unfortunately aspirates a large volume of gastric contents on induction. Now what should you do? To prevent further aspiration, the patient should be placed in a head down and lateral position if possible. If the patient has aspirated before placement of the endotracheal tube, orotracheal suctioning is indicated and can be performed before or after the airway is secured, depending on whether regurgitation continues and if the airway is visible. Once the airway has been secured, the trachea should ideally be suctioned before the application of positive pressure ventilation to avoid dissemination of aspirated stomach contents throughout the tracheobronchial tree. If airway obstruction is present due to food matter, flexible bronchoscopy can be used for airway clearance. There is no evidence supporting lavage with saline or neutralization of stomach acid with sodium bicarb lavage. An OG or NG tube should be placed to decompress the stomach. And as I mentioned earlier, prophylactic steroids and antibiotics are not indicated and should not be given. The decision to proceed with the case should be individualized and be based on the urgency of the procedure and the patient's clinical condition, as should the decision to extubate at the end of the case. Postoperatively, the patient should be monitored for 24 to 48 hours for the development of aspiration pneumonitis and aspiration pneumonia with pulse ox, chest x-ray, temperature checks, and possibly arterial blood gases. Thank you for tuning in to the Anesthesia on the Go podcast. I hope you learned something. Thank you for tuning in to the Anesthesia on the Go podcast. I hope you learned something. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well, on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.